broadly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. On The Naked Scientists this week. The shrinking proton. New research puts the size of the proton smaller than we thought. Also, antidepressants in water make shrimp swim towards the light and into danger. And the bacterial boost to evolution. We'll hear how the relationship between a fly and its bacteria presents a novel mechanism for evolution by natural selection. Hello, I'm Ben Valsler, and with me today is Helen Scales. Hello. Also this week, we're looking at the role that lasers play in medicine. We'll be finding out how lasers are used to treat tumours and how new methods mean we could use light to target drugs to just where we we need them. Also, Mira finds out how lasers can be used for extra fast DNA sequencing, and we find out how laser tweezers can be used to see how cells respond to each other on a one-to-one basis. And in Kitchen Science, Dave will be showing me what happens when you shine a laser through something and how this can tell us about its structure. So if you'd like to get in touch with us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send any questions or comments by email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Helen Scales. And as usual, we'll kick off with a look at this week's news. New research published in the journal Nature suggests that the proton might be as much as 4% smaller than we previously thought. And this discovery might prompt a re-evaluation of some trusted laws of physics. Protons are one of the very basic subatomic particles. Atoms are made of protons, neutrons and electrons, except for hydrogen, which doesn't actually have a neutron. The size of the proton is a value used in quantum electrodynamics and in spectroscopy, but so far it's only been known to an accuracy of about 1%. Physicists would obviously like a more accurate figure, but only recently has this been experimentally possible. To get a more accurate measurement, Randolph Pohl at the Max Planck Institute for Quantum Optic in Germany used a specialised particle accelerator to alter hydrogen atoms and replace the electron with a particle called a muon, creating muonic hydrogen. Now, muons have the same charge as electrons, but roughly 200 times more mass, and this means it will orbit much closer to the proton, and as such it interacts more closely with it, allowing us to more accurately probe the proton's properties. Muonic hydrogen only survives for around one microsecond, but this is actually long enough to blast the atoms with a pulse of laser light, which causes the muon to jump up to a higher energy level. When it falls back down, it releases some energy in the form of X-rays. Detecting and analysing the energy of the X-rays released tells us the energy difference between the two states. This energy gap, known as the Lamb shift, is determined by the size of the proton. Now, this gives us results that are more accurate than other methods of proton measurement, but they actually suggest that the proton is 4% smaller than we thought. This could have implications for the theories of quantum electrodynamics, or it could imply that the Rydberg constant, a value used in spectroscopy for identifying what elements we see in interstellar dust, for example, may not actually be correct. Now, physicists are very likely to be queuing up to check this finding, putting every element of the experiment and the calculations under scrutiny. So we'll have to wait and see what this measurement really means for modern physics. But this could be a very, very significant shake-up. 
4%. I mean, it doesn't sound much, but by the sounds of it, it really could make a heck of a lot of difference to, to, to our understanding of, of, of the universe. Really. Well, these calculations rely on very accurate figures, and they're, they're some really important calculations in quantum electrodynamics. This is really important stuff, and a difference of 4% can mean the world. Absolutely. Well, we'll wait and see how that one pans out. Well, I've got news from the marine world this week, and I'm afraid it isn't particularly good news. Antidepressants that end up in sewage effluent could, it turns out, have a major impact on marine wildlife, causing shrimp to swim towards instead of away from light. Now, that might not sound very important, but it is, because hanging around in well-lit waters make these animals far more likely to be eaten by birds or fish or other predators, and that could potentially really mess up and disrupt entire food webs. Publishing in the journal Aquatic Toxicology, Yasmin Euler and Alex Ford from the UK's University of Plymouth got the idea for this study from a type of parasite that infects various marine creatures like shrimps um, and making them more likely to swim towards light where they're eaten by other animals that are the next step in the life cycle of the parasite. So they're controlling the behaviour of these animals to make their own transmission more likely. Very clever stuff indeed. And the parasites change their host's swimming behaviour by manipulating levels of serotonin in their brain. Now, the researchers wondered if the antidepressant drugs that people take, that we take to help target our own serotonin levels and control our moods, might also have a similar effect on other animals. And they studied a common species of crustacean called Ectogamorous marinus. Now, they live between the tides. And in fact, if you go down to the beach, anywhere from the North Pole down to the southern Portugal and lift up and have a look around in some seaweed on the beach, you may well find some of these creatures hopping and wriggling around. They're really quite common. well, they, what they did was they took these shrimp from the beach and they put them in tanks and exposed them to seawater containing different levels of various drugs, including the antidepressant fluoxetine, which is better known as Prozac. And over the course of three weeks, the shrimp that were exposed to 100 nanograms per litre of fluoxetine were five times more likely to swim towards light instead of away from it compared to shrimp in clean seawater. Now, back in 2009, another study showed a similar effect on a fish called the fathead minnow, Um, when they were exposed to fluoxetine for five days, they became much more likely to be caught by predators as well. And the question is, well, do these drugs really end up in coastal waters at levels that were being tested in this study? And how do they get there in the first place? Well, the drugs that we take into our bodies, the things that we, we take to cure ourselves, we don't actually absorb them all. And quite a lot of it actually passes right through us and ends up being flushed down the toilet. And uh, these drugs, in fact, aren't removed at the moment in normal sewage processing plants. So they end up actually just finding their way and concentrating in rivers and in estuaries and areas along the coast. And they do reach levels up to and even higher than those ones studied in this particular case. Now, pollution from drugs like this is currently something that's really overlooked. It's not something that we're thinking about. Not many studies are looking at it, and it, but it could potentially be very important. And studies like this are really starting to draw our attention to these potentially devastating ecological problems that they could be causing. It's, it's highly possible that other crustaceans and other marine wildlife could be similarly affected by hormone disruptors like this antidepressant and many other man-made chemicals that are finding their way in increasing concentrations into the wild. It's a bit of a concern. It's good that these sorts of studies are being done. 
Now, researchers in America have identified a chemical that encourages the growth of new neurons and protects against neurodegeneration. Stephen McKnight at UT Southwestern and his colleagues screened 1,000 different chemicals and found eight candidates that seemed to support the formation of neurons in a region of the mouse brain called the dentate gyrus. This region, in both mice and in humans, is thought to contribute to the formation of new memories and is one of the few regions known to have high levels of neurogenesis, even in adults. Now, one of the eight candidates, called P7C3, had very favourable pharmacological properties, so the researchers focused their attentions on that one. It actually works by preventing apoptosis, the programmed cell death of newborn neurons. Now, the thing is, when these neurons form, they take a long and perilous journey to the right site, and many don't survive the process. It takes two or four weeks. Further research in mutant mice that lack a gene essential to normal brain development showed a marked increase in neurogenesis when on a prolonged course of P7C3. And as well as new neurons forming, a measurement of the electrophysiological activity showed that the dentate gyrus was functioning as it should be. So the new neurons are properly incorporated and they're functional. There was also tantalising evidence that P7C3 also enhanced the birth of new neurons in aged rats. Now, as rats age, they tend to show a reduction in neurogenesis alongside a reduction in the ability to form new memories. Rats on a daily dose of P7C3 showed an increase stability in some standard learning and memory tests and they also showed a higher rate of neurogenesis. Now the next step is to identify the molecular target for P7C3 but this finding could point the way to new neuroprotective drugs that prevent or treat diseases like Alzheimer's. Sounds very promising indeed and, of course, very interesting too. Well, for my final story, I'm going to stick with light, but this time the light that comes out of fireflies. And I'm going to ask the question, why do fireflies flash in time? Their rhythmic bioluminescent displays are extraordinary phenomena, sometimes lighting up entire forests with bright pulses of light. But why it happens is one of nature's great mysteries. There are all sorts of ideas, but up until now, no one's really experimentally tested any of them out. Well, now, Andrew Moiseff from the University of Connecticut and Jonathan Copeland from Georgia Southern University in the US have done just that. In their study in the journal Science, they suggest that swarms of male fireflies flash simultaneously so that females can recognise a potential mate from their own species. And that's very important indeed when it comes to making more fireflies. <laughs> Male fireflies fly around giving off a characteristic pattern of flashes, a different one for each species, and it's a bit like a system of Morse code. If a female spots a male of the same species, she will flash back at him during one of his pauses. Now, for around 1% of the 2,000 firefly species that there are, and in fact they're actually a type of beetle, they're not flies at all, the males will synchronise their flashes over a really large area. And to test out ideas to why this might happen, Moisef and Copeland created a virtual firefly world in the lab. They collected female Photonus carolinus fireflies, and they're a synchronous species from the Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, and they flashed an array of LED lights at them to mimic males of the same species. When all the LEDs flashed together, females were duped into thinking they were real males, and they responded back by flashing around 80% of the time. But when the LEDs flashed out of sync, the females hardly responded at all. They only flashed back about 10% of the time, or even less. So it seems that when fireflies are crowded together, 
Females can only make out individual males when they all flash together. Otherwise, it just looks like a big jumble of flashing lights to them. Flashing males are constantly on the move, which means if a female focuses too narrowly, she could easily miss parts of his characteristic flash pattern as he flies in and out of her field of view. Well, instead, what she probably does is she needs to look over a larger area of space so she can pick out those moving patterns. But if there are lots of males all flying around and flashing at the same time, the patterns quite quickly become muddled and confused. Now, the next step for this research will be to work out whether the female firefly's tiny brains are wired up in a way which means they actually just can't detect asynchronous flashes, and ultimately whether it's them, the female brains, that are driving the evolution of males that flash in time and put on these extraordinary nighttime firework displays. Have you ever seen these in action? I have, actually. I have to say, even when they're on their own, I think fireflies are such a wonderful thing to see. I remember thinking, there's a shooting star, but it's going <laughs> off course. Um, but to see them, I have once in, in caves in Borneo. I was very lucky to go and see some flashing synchronously, and it just, it's extraordinary. It, it's magical, it really is. And, and now to think that we're getting a bit close to understanding how that happens is, you know, even more magical, I think, itself. It's wonderful. I've certainly seen individual fireflies around, and they do look like fire. It's amazing. Uh, but I've never had the good fortune to see this synchronous effect. But how does it actually work? Does it travel out from a central point in a wave, or is it all perfectly timed? It is extremely well-timed. In their paper, um, these guys describe it's actually down to milliseconds. So it, it does pulse through that sort of population of males very, very quickly. Um, just how they do that and how they synchronise themselves is another question and very tantalising as well. Um, but d looking at this from this sort of evolutionary point of view is, is also really wonderful and hopefully will help us understand more about how it happens because it is really quite extraordinary. I've also been lucky enough to find a beetle. Um, it fell on my table when I was eating dinner and it, it's got this little little pocket of light on the back of its uh, its abdomen and that's what flashes it's just wonderful this this light that's emanating from life it's brilliant there aren't many people who would speak so fondly of the beetle that fell on their table while they were eating <laughs> <laughs> well why not brilliant thank you very much helen also this week, researchers in America have identified a novel mechanism for evolution. In the wild, a gene that increases an organism's chances of surviving and reproducing is usually passed down to the next generation, and so that gene will become more common in the population. But what if, instead of a gene giving an advantage, it's actually an infection with a symbiotic bacteria? Professor John J. Nicky is a biologist at Rochester University in New York, and he joins us now. Thank you for joining us, John. But what was it that made you look into this in the first place? Well, actually, I'd been studying Drosophila and their interactions with nematode parasites in the 1980s and 90s. And back then, there's one particular species, Drosophila neotestacea, that was really getting clobbered by nematodes, which I had studied quite a bit back then. Uh, for the past 10 years or so, I've been studying a different sort of infection, which are endosymbiotic bacteria that are passed on from mothers to offspring. We had recently discovered uh, spiroplasma bacteria in Drosophila neotestacea, and it didn't seem to be doing anything to enhance its own transmission. So I sort of wanted to see whether or not maybe they provided some sort of benefit for flies that are parasitized by nematodes. And lo and behold, we found in the lab that they had a whopping effect. Um, <laughs> when we found this out, when we looked at this out in the field, it was, it was equally strong or even stronger. So there was uh, more than a tenfold increase in the fertility of female flies if they carried the spiroplasma. 
So they obviously give an enormous advantage in fertility, but is there a trade-off? Do, do the bacteria affect the flies? Do they need to eat more? Is it harder to fly? What There must be something. They must be paying something for that advantage. There probably is some cost. We haven't seen anything, though. We're just wrapping up right now a uh, population cage experiment to look at the dynamics of, of this fireplasma infection in the absence of, of nematode parasites. We don't see any obvious fitness cost. Uh, the fertility is unaffected. The dynamics of the infection, it just seems to act like a neutral trait in the absence of the nematodes. So there may be a cost, but it's not big enough for us to detect. The main problem is that the transmission rate is less than perfect. About um, an infected female passes this bioplasma onto about 97% of her offspring. So in the absence of any selective benefit, that actually would be lost from the population very quickly. And how have we seen the rates actually changing in the population? And where have you got your flies from in order to look back historically and see the relationship? Well, in the 1980s, virtually every single nematode parasitized fly that I collected was completely sterile. Recently, the situation has changed dramatically. Now, the vast majority of parasitized flies have some level of fertility, which, which is actually astounding. So based on that sort of evidence, I'm, I've been able to infer that the infection rate by spiroplasma increased from about 10% in the 1980s to about 70 or 80% today. This is around Rochester. Also, I was able to get some museum specimens that actually a former student of mine, Dave Grimaldi, and I had collected in the 1980s, and uh, we developed PCR primers to look for spiroplasma in these museum specimens, and it turns out that none of the flies, none of the 20, were infected with spiroplasma from the 1980s. So the confidence limits on that are around 0 to 15%. So our best guess is that the infection frequency was around 10 to 15% in the 1980s, and that's uh, increased dramatically in the last 20 years. That's definitely a significant change, isn't it? Is this the only example that we know of of, of an infection like this offering a selective advantage? There's actually a handful of cases now that have been published. So there's a very nice example of a bacterium called Hamiltonella, which provides aphids resistance against parasitoid wasps. There's some been more recent studies of Wolbachia, which is another endosymbiotic bacteria, conferring resistance to RNA viruses, in Drosophila and in mosquitoes. So there, there are a couple of, there are a few examples. Um, the previous studies have all been done in the laboratory, and uh, so we've actually been able to show that this works out in the wild, and also we've been able to estimate the relevant parameters that govern the dynamics. And those parameters are consistent with this very rapid increase in the infection in the last 20 years. So how can this tell us a bit about evolution? As I said in the introduction, it, it, the mechanism is very similar, but instead of a gene, we have this symbiotic infection. What can we learn about the way that the flies have evolved from this mechanism? Well, I think this may be the tip of the iceberg, these few cases that have been found so far. People have been surveying insects now for the last uh, 10 years or so for infection by endosymbionts. There are a number of species of endosymbionts that infect insects. And it turns out that the majority of insect species are infected by one or more species of endosymbionts. And in the vast majority of cases, we have no idea what they're doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if in many cases, the endosymbionts actually provide some kind of protection against um, some kind of natural enemy that they encounter in the wild. It's exactly analogous to, to adaptation by spread of a beneficial mutation. So all the standard criteria for evolution by natural selection are met in this case, but it just doesn't involve a gene. 
This brings me on to my final question that you said most insects we think have probably got a relationship like this. Can this tell us anything about tackling bugs that are a problem, those that carry disease? There are a couple of human diseases, uh, river blindness and lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantiasis. These diseases are caused by nematodes that are carried from one person to another by insect vectors, black flies and mosquitoes. So it's occurred to us that if spiroplasma adversely affects nematodes in these insect vectors, the same way it does in Drosophila, one might be able to use spiroplasma as as a means to actually control the spread of these particular diseases which infect tens of millions of people in uh, tropical regions, especially Africa. So it's a potentially novel means of controlling these particular diseases. Well, this is a a wonderful finding, a very elegant paper, and, and it's nice that there's so many different angles to take on it. But thank you ever so much for joining us. That was Professor John Janicki from Rochester University. He's published that work in the journal Science this week, and so to read more about that or any of this week's news stories, you can join us online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. And incidentally, if you'd like to find out more about evolution, you might like to visit the Open University's Tree of Life. It's an interactive resource where you can examine the relationships between different species on Earth, even those that are sadly no longer with us. To find that, visit thenakedscientists.com and follow the link to the Open University from there. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Helen Scales and Ben Valslet. If you would like to get in touch with us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, and we'll keep an eye on all of those. Or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Well, this week we're exploring the role that lasers play in medicine and biomedical research. Later on we'll find out how lasers and special tags can make DNA sequencing much faster and how laser tweezers allow us to look at how cells interact on a one-to-one basis. But first we're joined by Dr Martin Austwick from the Medical Laser Centre at University College London. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. First of all, what sort of things are lasers being used for in medical treatments? Well, the sort of um, treatments we do at the National Medical Laser Centre are generally arranged around uh, treating tumours or conditions which will lead to cancer. That's uh, quite a common specialty for laser therapy. How exactly are lasers used when it comes to treating cancers and tumours? We've got something called photodynamic therapy, haven't we? What's that all about? Well, that's right. So the the traditional um, sort of old-fashioned approach to using lasers in medicine is use a very powerful laser, use it as a cutting tool, which is a very clean way of of excising tissue. But um, photodynamic therapy does something a bit more subtle. It doesn't use a thermal laser, it uses a very weak laser. And what that laser does is it activates a chemical, a photochemical, which uh, under normal circumstances is inert and doesn't do anything. But when you shine mostly any kind of light, but we use lasers because they're easy to control, when you, sh- when you shine the laser on them, th- this drug activates and becomes, becomes active, it combines with oxygen in the tissue and creates these things called reactive oxygen species, which can damage the tissue around them. So it's like a very sort of microscopic level caustic burn that we're creating with this interaction of light and chemical. And what sort of cancers can this be particularly effective in treating? I mean, it's being used all around the world on a whole variety of different cancers. Uh, The sort of work I've been involved with in London have been um, one for focal treatment of prostate cancer. Um, It has been used in the past on the esophagus. There's a new trial being planned on the breast, 
one on the pancreas. So really, there's a whole range of different options because if you've got a hollow organ like the esophagus, it's a fairly simple matter to shine the light, put some sort of fibre into the organ and shine the light around it. If you've got a solid organ, you can actually insert a fibre via a clear needle and illuminate the, the solid organ from within. Right, so it's not just a case of shining light from, from the outside. You can actually introduce it into the body. But yep. presumably, do you have to keep patients in the dark otherwise? Would normal light actually affect them as well? Well, that's absolutely right. So as soon as the, um, typically these drugs are administered systemically, the patient will, will be injected with them or they'll take them orally, and then their whole bodies will be very sensitised. So at that point, you have to keep them in... You know, you don't have to be excessive, but it's normally like a dimly lit hospital room. And then when it comes to the time that you want to do your treatment, you take them into theatre or, or into clinic, and you just shine the laser on, on the particular portion you want to treat. But on the surface, you, do, you can just shine it on a bit of their, of their skin, and, and if it's an internal organ, you can focus the light there. And um, in terms of from the patient's point of view and in terms of how they're treated and, and how long it takes and maybe the after effects as well, how is, does this compare with perhaps more conventional um, ways of, of treating cancers, chemotherapy and so on? In terms of focal therapy, in terms of you treating an individual tumour, the big advantage of, of photodynamic therapy over something like surgery is that, or, or thermal laser treatment is that uh, photodynamic therapy it tends to target the living cells uh, and not the sort of collagen scaffolding that surrounds them. So what you tend to see is that you, uh, you kill the cancer and when the tissue recovers, when it grows back, you still retain a really good cosmetic effect because the sort of underlying scaffolding of the tissue hasn't been affected. So if you're doing something on the surface and if you're doing something, you know, for example, on the head and neck, you, know, you end up with, with a sort of treatment that doesn't leave the patient with a lot of disfigurement, which can be really important. Excellent. And, uh, and lasers can also be used in, in another treatment, which goes by the name of photochemical internalisation. We've got lots of good words in this, oh, yes. in this story. So what, what's that one about? How does that differ from what we were talking about in terms of um, the photodynamic therapy? Well, this is a very new treatment that we're really excited about. What this does, it's, it works in a similar way to photodynamic therapy in that it's activating a, a photoactive drug but also you've got um, the additional factor of a chemotherapeutic agent. And there are certain kinds of cancers that are very resistant to chemotherapeutic agents. And what this does is it effectively, the chemotherapeutic agent, the, the, the chemotherapy drug will be taken up by the cells and the photodynamic effect when you shine the laser will actually break apart the structures that are trapping and isolating the chemotherapy agents. I mean that these chem chemotherapy agents get to the cell and can actually do what they're supposed to do, which is kill the cell. It's a way of injecting it very specifically into particular cells? Well, it's, it's more a way of preventing resistant cells from being resistant. So it's breaking down the defences of a cell that doesn't want to be treated by chemotherapy. And is but this, it is very, very specific, as you say. Are you using this already, or is this just something that's in development? There's a very new trial on patient, which has been going uh, for a few months now, in uh, head and neck cancers mainly. I think that's the only one which is being carried out at the moment. OK, so this is something that we can look towards in the future. Well, thank you, Martin, very much for giving us an introduction to how lasers are used in medical treatments. That was Dr Martin Austwick from University College London. And now we're going to head over to the National Physical Laboratory where Mira Lingam is finding out how we can use lasers to look at individual molecules. This could be used for faster sequencing of DNA and also in the development of what are called DNA nanoswitches, which can accurately identify certain sequences that you're looking for. Mira met up with MPL researcher Alex Knight. We're using lasers to look at single molecules, which could be DNA or proteins, for example, and you can get a lot more information about molecules when you look at them as a collection of individual molecules. You can get a lot more information about how the molecules differ from each other and how they behave. So what we need 
to see single molecules is we need very bright light sources. And uh, lasers uh, are very nice in that they're bright, they're stable, and they're a single color. So it's a very pure form of light that's very easy to work with. And because they're parallel and they form very nice parallel straight beams, they're very easy to manipulate and focus them exactly where you want them. And so we use a property of molecules called fluorescence, where we make the molecules emit light by putting special chemical groups, a tag, on the parts of the molecule that we want to detect. Then you shine a laser of one colour at them, and they emit light of another colour. And that's a very sensitive way of detecting molecules, and it's used for all kinds of applications in biology. So by having these tags on the molecules, you can do things like you can count how many molecules are there, or you can use them, if you use a special type of tag, you can use them to follow what the molecules are doing. All you see of the molecules is a point of light, and it's just like when you look up into the night sky and look at the stars. And it's the same with these molecules. You just see this point of light. But even that is enough to tell you quite a lot. So depending on what kind of experiment you're trying to do and what kind of tag you've put on the molecule, you can learn a lot just by looking at these points of light. So what have been potential applications then or techniques that have, been, have benefited from the use of lasers in this way? Well, uh, one example is much faster uh, sequencing of genomes. So we talk about detecting single molecules, but of course the nice thing is you can actually look at many molecules at the same time. You use these tags I was talking about, and you put a different tag on each of the four letters that you find in a DNA sequence, A, T, C, and G. And so by using uh, different lasers, you would see different uh, letters, and so you could read out the sequence in that way. So you would scan, say, for all of the A's, and that a certain colour would be emitted, and then all of the T's and a certain colour would be emitted, and you'd combine that all together to therefore then get the sequence. That's right. By doing that for many, many millions of molecules all at the same time, you can collect a huge amount of information. And, well, you've got um, something here on the screen which does actually resemble a night sky with um, occasional twinkles here and there. Mm -hmm. And this is showing us a new area that you're working on, which is the field of nano-switches. What are these? So um, one type of molecule we're looking at is a, actually an artificial molecule. It's a switch made out of DNA. And this is a collaboration we have with some guys at the University of Edinburgh. And these DNA nano-switches are very useful for detecting um, specific DNA sequences uh, when they bind to this sequence, they switch, and you see that as a fluorescent signal that we can monitor with our, our microscope here. And the reason they're interesting is you can use them for genetic testing, and the idea is if you're looking for a particular sequence of DNA, say in a patient, these molecules only switch if they find the exact right sequence of DNA. When you look at the individual molecules, you can actually see this switching happen. And so when you look at the screen, you can see these points of light, and you'll see that they blink on and off. And that's the actual switching process happening. And having developed these switches, you can then identify if particular sequences, say the sequence for a particular disease, is mm -hmm. present then by the fact these switches are switched on. That's right, yes. But this principle, using fluorescent tags or probes to attach to specific sequences of DNA, has been used before. So what makes these switches better? Are they more accurate? That's the essence of it. The idea is that they're more accurate because they only switch when they bind to the exact right sequence of DNA because many of the genetic changes that people need to test for are changes of only a single letter in this genetic sequence. A lot of uh, the methods aren't specific enough to detect just a single change very accurately, and the idea of this is... If there's a change of a single letter in this genetic sequence, they won't switch. So other methods, say, such as fluorescent probes, will attach to a sequence even if one base is different because the majority of it is the same, so it will still attach. 
whereas these switches won't fluoresce unless the sequences match exactly. It, it may attach, but unless the sequence is right, it won't switch. What's involved with the switch in order to fluoresce and cause a twinkle like we can see here? To measure the switching, we actually use two tags. And depending on whether those tags in the molecule are close together or far apart, we'll get a different signal. So attaching onto a desired sequence causes the switch to come together, essentially, and then emit the light? Exactly. What would be the potential applications, then, of this? It's brought the era where you can contemplate the idea that everybody would have their DNA sequenced. A lot of people think that uh, the future of medicine is what they call personalised medicine, and that's where, before you're given a drug treatment, you would have a genetic test to see what is the right drug for you and what is the right dose of that drug. And the idea is you don't waste time or money giving people a drug that won't work for them. And, of course, you don't give people a drug that will make them ill, that will have a lot of side effects. So the idea is that in future you, you would have this genetic test and they would, the doctors would then know what was the best drug to give you. So faster DNA analysis could lead to medicine on a more personal level in the future. That was Alex Knight from the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, Middlesex, talking to Miracynth Lingam. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Helen Scales. If you'd like to make contact to us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, a few weeks ago on The Naked Scientists, we heard how a highly focused laser beam can be used as if it were a pair of tweezers. It forms an optical trap that allows us to manipulate very, very tiny objects. Now, this technology has allowed researchers to try some very novel techniques, such as finding out how cells respond to pathogens on a one-to-one basis. And we are joined by Dr Claire Bryant, who's a Cambridge University researcher, and she has been doing just that. Thank you for joining us, Claire. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben, for having me. Um, Why is it important that we try and find out how cells respond to each other or how cells respond to pathogens on this one-to-one basis? Okay, so a lot of work looking at host-pathogen interaction has focused on a sort of population view of how cells respond to pathogens. And some of the work we've been looking at has suggested that, in fact, cells don't respond in a universal, homogeneous kind of way. And actually to explore exactly how um, a pathogen interacts with a cell, we need to do it as an individual cell-pathogen interaction. And this has revealed a number of very interesting things. So we're particularly interested in how macrophages, which are phagocytic cells which gobble up bugs, uh, respond to pathogens such as salmonella, which causes food poisoning. And we found that, in fact, despite the fact we assumed that all macrophages would become infected by salmonella, in fact, they don't. And most of them, in fact, aren't infected at all, which is very bizarre considering that a, a macrophage phase should be the cell that gobbles up all the bugs that are out there. So, so far we've, we've really just been looking at the average, we've been looking at what Indeed. happens when this whole population. If I can just get into the laser, because I had a go with one of these, it's called a holographic assembler, a few weeks ago in, in Bristol, and I was amazed at the fact that I was moving these tiny, tiny beads of glass that are a third the size of a red blood cell. But I also had to wear eye protection in order to be in the room. So how do you adapt a laser so that it doesn't damage cells? Okay, so what we've done is we we use a laser which is uh, set to a wavelength of 1,064 nanometers. 
And that's actually within the infrared range of the lasers. And this has been shown to be able to be used to manipulate cells and the cells remain viable, they remain able to proliferate. And therefore we're reasonably confident that that's not actually going to damage the cell. The other thing we do, of course, is we uh, enclose the cells and the bacteria within a, an environmental chamber with the gas, the humidity level and the temperature is controlled so that everything is set up for maximum cell viability and bacterial viability. But it's really using the laser in the infrared spectrum, which should reduce any damage to the uh, cell and the bacterium. So you've already mentioned that we've looked at how macrophages, big eaters, uh, cope with salmonella and the fact that some of them don't do quite what we expect. What sorts of things can we actually hope to learn from understanding these one-to-one interactions? So we're we're very interested in um, how the macrophages are actually able to take up the salmonella and how the salmonella is actually able to get into the cell. So we're going to be able to do things at two sort of levels. So, So first of all, actually just picking up a bacterium, which is actually quite a challenge in its own right because they move very, very fast. So it's like a massive computer game trying to catch these things. They have tails which makes them spin and roll and run. They're some of the fastest things in the world for their body length, aren't they? Yeah, they are indeed. You have to be very, very fast with your tweezers. Once you've caught them, you then are able to take them up to the macrophage. You're able then to look not just at how the bug and the the macrophage sort of interact with each other, we can measure the physical processes that are involved. So we can measure the time it takes for the bacterium to take up the macrophage. Um, We can also try to explore the kind of forces that are involved, which is is an element of bacterial infection we we haven't really considered in any way at all. And then the other thing we're able to do is we're able to use cells that lack specific receptors that we believe are important for taking up the macrophage. And that will then, uh, taking up the bacterium rather, so then we'll be able to see, okay, how do these receptors contribute to the process of the salmonella uptake, but also to the physical processes that may be involved. And the counter to that is we can take bacteria that lack the specific proteins that are important for uptake into the cell and see how that really affects not only the physical interaction with the cell but the uptake process itself. So we're we're going to be able to understand the whole process that's involved. Further to that, macrophages exist in sort of a number of different phenotypes. So we'll be able to take different types of macrophage and see which ones are actually important for taking up the cells, which ones are important for taking up the bacteria and allowing to grow, and which ones don't take them up at all, and try and explore what the physical differences in those cells actually are and why that affects the ability of the salmonella to get into the macrophage. Can we use this trick to be even more specific as well? I was mentioning manipulating these tiny glass beads. Can we just coat them with, say, one particular protein we're looking at and then find out exactly how a macrophage responds to just this protein without all of the other factors that complement it? Yeah, so some of the preliminary work we did was to look at a toxin which is uh, present on salmonella called endotoxin. And we were able to coat beads with endotoxin. And endotoxin is believed to be antifagocytic. And what we were able to do was to compare beads specifically coated with endotoxin the beads were the same size as the bacteria and then compare those to beads that had been coated with endotoxin and an antibody which is uh, important it's called an opsonization process which enhances phagocytosis and what we could see if we compared uncoated beads with endotoxin coated beads and opsonized beads was that the um, endotoxin beads were much 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 slower to be taken up into the macrophage whereas the opsonized beads were taken up really quickly as were the beads that didn't have any coating at all so there's a whole plethora of experiments we should be able to do to allow us to precisely investigate those kind of processes. 
And what is the next step for you? What's the, the goal you really want to chase at the moment? So the goal for us at the moment is to really explore why some macrophages take up salmonella and some macrophages don't take up salmonella. And then the key question for me as a biologist that I'm really interested in is to explore which of the receptors are important. I'm particularly interested in receptors that recognise various uh, pattern-associated molecules that sit on the outside of the bugs, and they drive the um, innate immune response of a macrophage to the bug. So I'm really interested in how those receptors specifically affect the uptake of salmonella into the cell and whether or not there's a link then between the uptake of the salmonella into the cell and the immune process then occurs downstream of that. Well, thank you ever so much. We're going to have to leave it there. That's Dr Claire Bryant from Cambridge University. She is using laser tweezers to really look at something we've never looked at before and that's the way that cells respond to pathogens on a one-to-one basis. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valslow and Helen Scales. And if you'd like to get in touch through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can always email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. And now it's time to dim the lights and join Dave Ansell. For Kitchen Science, a few weeks ago, Dave built his very own homemade laser. Now, Dave, we're looking at some of the properties of lasers today, so are you wheeling out your homemade laser again? figured it was an awful lot more practical and a lot easier for people to do at home if I just used a normal laser pointer, which you get all over the place these days. And what are we actually looking at? Basically what we're doing is shining it through things. Uh, well, that sounds easy. What, what sorts of things are we going to shine it through? Well, I've got some silica gel, those little things you get with packaging sometimes to keep things dry. I've got some cling film and a couple of bits of paper. So you're going to shine your laser pointer through these materials and onto this wall... But what should we be looking out for? Well, you probably want to do this in a fairly dark room and shine the light, not at anybody's eyes, of course, because it can be dangerous, but against a nice white wall. Before you shine it through anything, just show me how good your laser pointer is. It's not the best laser pointer in the world. It's got quite a lot of of speckly patterns around it, but it's still mostly in a nice, sharp spot in the middle. What happens when we shine it through something? Let's start off with the silica gel. It looks like it's been sort of spread out so instead of being a really tightly focused spot in the middle it's covering a much larger area there are sort of thin lines that seem to be coming out of it and all in all it looks like a cloud of stars so it looks like a photo of space rather than a nice tight laser beam yeah you're right it sort of produced a very sort of speckly pattern and if you look closely at those speckles they're actually not staying in one place. They kind of change. And it's this really odd, slightly disturbing effect you get with lasers. You get these speckles which change all over the place and it's slightly hard for your eyes to get the hang of. That's with silica gel. What about the other materials you've got? Let's have a look at some cling film. I've just sort of scrunched up the cling film a bit. Oh, no, that's beautiful. This time, instead of being a big blur, we're getting sort of star shapes. They're changing very quickly, but there's these long, thin lines shooting out, forming a star. That's very different to the silica gel. That's right, it's a different structure. The silica gel is actually made up of billions and billions of little tiny particles of silica, giving it a huge surface area so it can absorb water very well. Whereas the cling film is obviously just sort of folded up cling film, so it's much more linear in shape. Okay, and finally, you have a piece of paper. Now, I'd have thought the paper is just going to block the light. What I've done is I've cut a little tiny slit in the piece of paper with a pair of scissors. What I'm going to do is I'm going to shine the light through this slit because what we've been looking through up till now are all incredibly complicated things and understanding what's going on is almost impossible. If we look through something much more simple, we might be able to get some idea what's going on. And what we're seeing now... Instead of a star shape or those geometric patterns, we're getting a very long, thin line that seems to be broken up. It's 
made of spots. That's right, and the slit is not the two pieces of paper being slightly moved apart. So if I change the angle, it will effectively change the width of that slit. So if the slit is very, very narrow, you get fewer, bigger spots. And as the slit gets wider, the spots get closer and closer together. That's a really impressive effect, actually, given that it's just a cut in a piece of paper. But all of these are very impressive. All of them are giving us interesting patterns to look at. What's actually happening to the laser? Well, the laser is giving out light. It's actually quite a special form of light called coherent light. That means that it looks very like a nice smooth wave, whereas normal light is much more messy. And if you move 10 wavelengths along from a peak, you won't necessarily reach another peak. It might be a trough. Everything's all a bit messed up. This light, if you move 10 wavelengths along from one peak, you'll find another peak. So all of the waves in a laser light come together in a very ordered, neat way. The peaks line up, the troughs line up, and it acts like one very neat, coherent wave. Yeah, it's basically how you imagine light to be. So you're shining the light through a slit, and when the light meets that slit, every point along that slit, the light actually spreads out, a bit like if you've got a gap in a seawall and waves coming through it, the waves will spread out coming through that gap. And so what you see on the wall is the sum of the effects of all of the light from every bit of the slit. This spreading out is called diffraction, and so the pattern we're seeing is called a diffraction pattern. So I can see why the waves would get distorted going through the gap and they'll spread out in a curve rather than in a straight line, but why does that mean we see such a regular pattern on the wall? Well, in some places, the waves from the slit add up to form extra bright bits of light, In other places, they cancel out, so troughs meet peaks, and overall you get no wave at all, and so you get dark spots. But what about the incredible patterns we're getting shining through other materials? Well, basically you're putting the light through a much more complicated structure. And if you remember, as the slit got wider, the spots got closer together, so actually the effect of shining a laser through something is that it turns all the big features in the actual object into small features in the pattern and all the small features in the actual object into big features on the pattern. So depending exactly on the structure you're shining it through, you'll get very different patterns on the wall. But even when it wasn't going through anything, the laser itself did look a little bit speckled. It was a little bit spread out. Is that just to do with the quality of the laser? Well, effectively all lasers are going to do this because the laser itself is a slit... So light from one side of the laser will add up with laser from the other side of the laser and you'll get these diffraction patterns. And also if you're shining it onto a not particularly smooth surface, in some places the light is going to add together and form peaks and other places it's going to subtract and form troughs. So that's the reason why lasers often look quite speckly and sort of change shape all the time. So is this just a property of lasers? Because it sounds like this should apply to normal light as well, like light from a torch. It does apply to normal light as well. You do get diffraction patterns. But the thing about light from a torch is because the light is so incoherent, the patterns only last for microseconds. So you do get diffraction patterns on everything you're looking at, but they're changing so fast that they average out to looking normal. This is all very pretty and great for pop concerts and so on, but what use is it to us? Well, not using a laser, but this diffraction pattern is actually really important for understanding the structure of what we're made of. If you use a slightly shorter wavelength form of light, something like X-rays, and you shine it through a crystal structure, then the diffraction pattern you produce, you can use to work out what the crystal structure was. It was actually how Crick and Watson worked out the structure of DNA. So 
a beautiful effect that we can see on a wall using a laser has also driven some of the most important science of the last hundred years. That's all we have for this week's Kitchen Science, and we'll be back with more very soon. So, shining a laser through something transparent can tell you quite a lot about the structure of the material, as well as create some beautiful patterns. And as Dave said, you can try this out at home if you have a laser pointer, but do be careful not to shine it in anyone's eyes. That could be dangerous. You should compare different materials and see the sorts of patterns and structures that you create. We will put pictures of this effect online at thenakedscientists.com slash kitchen science, where you can also find many more experiments which you try out at home. Now we've just been talking about how it is that a biologist comes to be working on lasers. So Claire, thank you ever so much again for joining us. How did this come about? How did this happen? It was quite interesting actually. I started doing some work with uh, a colleague of mine called Julia Gogg in the maths department and we had a few beers one evening and we were chatting about the sort of basic principles that were involved in how salmonella infects cells. And she asked me a lot of really awkward questions. And I was sitting there thinking, well, do I know the answer to this? I think I do. And I went away and looked in the literature. And in fact, not many of the answers were actually known. So we started to talk about this. And then we started to collaborate with a physicist called Pietro Cicuta. And when we had experimental questions, and Julia would say, what about this? And I said, well, I think it does that, but I can't quite build the kit to do it, or I don't quite know how to do this. Pietro said, no, it's all right. I can build a piece of gear. So then we sort of have started this three-way collaboration with awkward questions my ideas for biological experiments. And Pietro then saying, yeah, we can do this. We can do this this way, that way or the other. And so it's then proven to be just really, really exciting to do experiments I never dreamed were possible, to be honest. So this is how the real novel stuff comes about, isn't it? It's when researchers from different fields get together, maybe over a beer, maybe for coffee perhaps, and these sorts of fantastic, fabulous research comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just amazing to me. I, I hadn't been sure how multidisciplinary work would really happen. And having had this kind of interaction with these guys, and I'm now trying to learn their language because it, obviously the mathematical language is very, very different to the biological language, and they are embryo biologists. But the kind of interaction between the three of us is, is just proving to me to be a real eye-opener and, and an obvious way forward for us. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Helen Scales. And we've had some wonderful questions in. One from Nile Bat, who said, if we form a tunnel between two poles of the Earth and there is a free fall of a marble through the tunnel, what will happen? Now, this is a question that we actually get quite a lot. And it almost seems a little bit counterintuitive. Helen, can you remember the answer for this Didn't one? Didn't we have this just a couple of weeks ago? I think we and have we, It wasn't a marble, but a person. A person, indeed. <laughs> um, what the theory suggests is that if you were to drop a marble or jump down this hole, you would accelerate as you get towards the centre of the Earth. And then when you pass the centre of the Earth, you'd start to decelerate. But because of the energy you'd built up, you would, in fact, go all the way through to the other side. Now, if you were lucky and had something to grab hold of, then you could get out on the other side. But if not, then the same thing would happen again. You would turn back and you would oscillate one way and the other and just bounce around between the Earth. The theory is it should take around the same amount of time that it takes to orbit the Earth. So thank you very much for your question, Nile. Um, we've also had one from WalkSnap. Now, this uh, is a little bit revolting for any iPhone or other touchscreen phone owners. But he says, if you incubated bacteria on a mobile phone touchscreen, what bacteria would you find? And could you tell the areas that are touched most? Helen, how clean do you keep your phone? I don't have a touch screen. I've got an old-fashioned <laughs> one with buttons, but I assume the same thing would count with buttons as well as touch screen. I think it probably would. Um, I suppose it all comes down to how well you wash your hands after you've been to the 
bathroom, I suppose, is one thing, whether the kind of bacteria that, that pass through our systems end up on our hands and, uh, and on, our, on our phones. Would they, would, they, would they survive and live on our phones? So that's the question, I suppose. Would they be able to actually form colonies? Well, bacteria can survive quite a long time, actually, on various surfaces. And we know of around about a 1,000 different bacteria species that will live on our skin. And I think you probably could tell the key areas that are touched most because you're going to put down more grease on there, you're going to put more skin cells, which will act as food, and you're going to put more bacteria on there. So, yes, possibly it could be a very good way to find out what <laughs> buttons people press most often, which is really quite disturbing when you think about it that way. We've also had a question from Polet, uh, and he wants to know why an ice cube melts in a glass of water. Now, I regret that Dave Ansell isn't here because he would give us a wonderful, wonderful and distinctive answer in his very individual style. But I'm going to give it a go. I'm not a physicist. But what I think happens is you get an equilibrium between molecules of water that are frozen in the ice and molecules in the water and they will move back and forward so constantly you get these molecules that are becoming water or forming back into the ice structure and when everything is stable when you're at a fixed temperature then it shouldn't change too much you'll end up with the same amount of ice all the time but it is temperature dependent so when it's above a certain temperature more of these molecules are going to come out of the ice structure and into the water structure and this means in total you'll get less ice more water and eventually the ice cube will melt now of course the interesting thing is looking at the fact that because of the density of ice if you put an ice cube in a very full glass of water so much of it is floating above the surface that when it melts your glass of water still won't overspill it's really actually a really important question as well not just about ice and glasses but about ice and the sea and and why that doesn't melt or when it does melt and 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 how that will cause or won't cause changes in sea level as well. So I think that's a really big question from what sounds like something that's just about having a nice cool drink on a hot day. Actually, it's got really big implications for all sorts of things going on in the natural world. Thank you very much, Helen. And now it's time for our question of the week with Diana O'Carroll. This week, what counts as technologically advanced? Hello, naked people. My name is Levi and I'm calling from Israel. Recently, I came back from a trip in South America. My question is, Why is it that in the time of the discovery of the Americas by Europe, Europe had the Renaissance, Leonardo, guns, steel, and so on, while the Americas were stuck in a sort of Bronze Age? Was the reason geographical, nutritional, religious, what? Love you all. Thank you. Bye. Guns were certainly something the old world had, then the new world didn't. But why? My name is Jeff Oliver. I'm a lecturer in archaeology at the University of Aberdeen. First, I think it's important to say that the popular perception would have it that the Americas were a backwater to the sort of technological prowess of Europe. But I think this is actually very simplistic and perhaps an unfair stereotype. Speaking very broadly, part of this has to do with the development of very complex cultural, economic and political formations, which partly hinge on the development of agriculture. And in fact, in parts of the Americas and Europe, we in fact see very similar kinds of development. Now, in terms of things like guns and armor, things like that, which perhaps allowed the Europeans an advantage early on, the difference here comes down to a number of factors that separate Europe from America. 
and that is that Europeans were exposed to gunpowder invented in China and effectively was improved upon through the development of science. But I think, once again, it's very simplistic to say that the Americas are not as technologically sophisticated in other terms. So sometimes you just have the sort of events that lead to you discovering how to make iron or how to make guns. And these can change your entire technological development. But if agriculture is indirectly an important step in the development of technologies, why might the old world have developed agriculture before the new world? It is interesting. For instance, yes, we see earlier forms of agriculture in the Middle East. We see it much later in North America. This has got nothing to do with sort of a, a, a unilineal notion of progress whereby all societies should follow on this sort of uh, similar ladder of progress. It, it comes down to very specific historical situations. Probably in the Americas, it has something to do with fewer people. We see less of a need for the development of agriculture earlier on in the Americas because we have less of a population than in places like Europe. So it's almost certainly coming down to a situation like that. It may have been a lack of population pressure that meant agriculture came to the Americas much later. The founding population of humans there is thought to have been very small indeed at about 15,000 years ago. But there could have been a whole load of other factors like geography and climate. But we can't really say that the old world was more advanced than the new when some societies there could still forge some rather impressive things out of gold or weave very fine textiles. We had a few emails this week mentioning the guns, germs and steel advantage of European conquistadors. Andrea Gratius said that trying to get the trajectory of new world societies to fit that of old world ones doesn't really work. But if you ask the question the other way around, why were the European invaders not so advanced, you'd be asking about the differences in morals and values. But now here's something that not all societies take part in. Hello, naked scientists. Uh, this is Nelson from Cambridge. And my question is, is there any biological benefit to kissing amongst humans? Thank you. What's the point of kissing? Why not rub noses? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or writing on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. You can find all of her previous questions on the website at thenakedscientists.com or you can find them in their own special podcast. Find that on iTunes. But that's all we have for this week. Next week we're looking at nuclear power. We'll explore the problems with safely storing nuclear waste and we'll look at the hybrid reactor designs that could use that waste as an extra fuel. Get any questions you have into chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, post a question on our Facebook page, or you can join in the discussion on our forum. If you want to catch up with anything we've done, see our experiments, or follow up on any of the news stories we've covered, just join us online at thenakedscientists.com. Many thanks to John J. Nicky, Martin Austwick, Alex Knight and Claire Bryant for joining us this week and to our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Sarah Custer-Perry and Tom Simpkins. It's coming up to 10 years of The Naked Scientists and we're running a survey to find out exactly who's listening and how you think we could improve our shows. As an added incentive, we're also offering Amazon vouchers worth £10 to 10 lucky respondents who answer by the 10th of the 10th, 2010. You can find the survey at thenakedscientists.com slash survey. 
The Naked Scientist was produced by Chris Smith and presented by Helen Scales and me, Ben Valsler. It was produced in association with The Open University. To discover a whole range of science content, including lots of interactive features, log on to thenakedscientists.com and follow the links to The Open University. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.